For the first portion of scripture that we read this evening is Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. This recounts the main history that we will be preaching on this evening using the New Testament as our text. But one thing worth noting, um, one point I'm not going to make in the sermon, but it's worth noting here that this is also the chapter that records the appointing of the 70 elders that would later become known as the Sanhedrin and would be responsible for pronouncing the death sentence upon the Christ. The context of the appointment of those elders is the lust of the people and indicates too that the work of elders, both in Old and New Testament, concerns that lust. So with that as an introduction, let's read Numbers 11. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldst say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth a sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, And I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee. 
that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month, until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people among whom I am are six hundred thousand footmen. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh, that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand wax short? Thou shalt see now, whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto them and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that When the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp, and Joshua the son of Nun... The servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord, Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses gat him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea. And let them fall by the camp, as it were, a day's journey on this side, and as it were, a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp. And as it were, two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten omers, And they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hateavah, because they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibroth Hateavah unto Hazaroth and abode at Hazaroth. Now we turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, you know, because it's quoted in our form for the Lord's Supper. This is where the Apostle gives the institution of the Lord's Supper as he received it from Jesus himself. But what we're going to read is the prelude to that. we we'll read the first few verses and then our text. 1 Corinthians 10, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And now is our text. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Thus far we read in God's word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there are some events in human history that are so devastating and God's judgments upon the human race so severe that simply mentioning the name where they occurred will immediately bring to mind to almost any member of the human race what exactly happened there. You have places like Pompeii, or Verdun, perhaps Stalingrad, or Pearl Harbor. The Bible also has places like that, Sodom and Gomorrah, or Jericho, Samaria. You should add to that list, Kibroth Hateva. Kibroth Hateva should be one of those places because it is a mass grave that contained a huge amount of Israelites, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. That is the grave of those who lusted It is a grave that is found somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula where, of course, the bones and the bodies of those that are buried that have long turned to dust. And yet God wants us to remember that grave and never to forget it. And that's evident when the Lord speaks of that place in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. That is a reference to Kibroth Hateva, even though the name is not literally mentioned there. You see, the name Kibroth Hateva means the grave of lust. And when in 1 Corinthians 10 we read, Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they lusted, 
Anyone that's familiar with Scripture should immediately think of Kibroth, Ateva. But of course we don't. We might remember some of the history. We might remember the miracle of quail. We might remember the murmuring and the complaining. But we tend to forget what God did there. And God does not want us to forget. The mention in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, with regard to this history, teaches us that that history is among what the Apostle says are those things that are given to be an example. And an example especially that we do not lust as they did. Lust is not a sin that God takes lightly, but a sin that God judges severely, as he did at Kibroth Hateva. And it's a sin that is a great danger and invokes the wrath of God, not only in the Old Testament, among Old Testament saints, but one that invokes the wrath of God with regard to New Testament saints, which is why it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The we there also, like at Kibroth Hateva, was not simply a few people, a number of people, perhaps even a large number of people that lusted, but a sin that God judged all Israel was guilty of, and so a plague came upon all of them, and how God views it in the church today. The reference to Kibroth Hateva, the grave of lust, is also instruction that this is important with regard to the Lord's table. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul specifically mentions this as he heads toward giving instruction on the Lord's table and even instruction with regard to self-examination. You see, not only are we prone to minimize the sin of lust in our own heart and in our own soul, which is very dangerous when it comes to self-examination, Perhaps when we do self-examination, we imagine to ourselves, I'm to look only for those great and notable sins, those sins that we might walk in, or even worse, sit and do a self-examination, not of self, but an examination of everyone else. Well, the Apostle says, not so fast. Let's look in one's heart, and let's look for lust. Unless we minimize that, also take note of the connection in the history between that sin of lust and their despising of the manna. It was their lust for flesh, even evil flesh, as the apostle calls it, that explains why they despised the heavenly manna. And even the little children here know that that manna was a picture of Christ. Just like the bread broken that is on the table of the Lord next week. If we 
must come hungry and thirsty for the reality represented in the sacrament, then it is very important that we examine ourselves with regard to lust. Consider with me this evening the lesson, the spiritual lesson to us of Kibroth Heteva. And we notice in the first place, lusting for earthly flesh. Secondly, the despising of the heavenly manna. And finally, the epitaph that God wrote. The lusting for earthly flesh. That's what the apostle calls the sin of the people of Israel. Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The things that the apostle refers to are those things that were mentioned earlier in that chapter. The things there were basically the food of Egypt, the onions and the leeks and the garlics and the melons. The food that they ate there in Egypt was the object of their lust according to verse 5 of Numbers 11. Now what's important for us is to not misunderstand, however, the apostle when he calls those evil things. They lusted after evil things. Perhaps we conclude to ourselves from that that the sin here is that the object of their lust was evil. And so their desires were evil because of that. And so many have proposed different things about what their sin is, which is not their sin at all. For example, you will find it common to explain their sin as this. Well, they were poor people. They were servants and they were slaves. And the foods that are mentioned here are are the foods of the wealthy, the foods of the rich. They weren't the food of the slaves. And so their sin is they wanted food that was beyond their means. And so the lesson for the New Testament church is is don't have a hankering for all the rich people's stuff. The fancy clothes and the fancy food and, you know, the steak and the designer clothing. Don't, don't, Don't desire and lust after those. That's the sin. But that's not true. The fact of the matter is this was the food of everyone in Egypt. This was the food that even the common servants and the common people ate In fact, in Numbers 11, they called it themselves the food that we freely ate in Egypt. That is, the food even of the common slaves. So that wasn't their sin, nor was their sin this, that they lusted in things that were evil in themselves. The text says they lusted for evil things, but the idea is not that they were evil in themselves. The fact of the matter is the onions, the leeks, and the garlics, and the melons, and all those things were good. They were part of God's good creation. They were good gifts that God had given them to eat in Israel. There was nothing wrong with the things in themselves. No, they're called evil things because it was their sin That made them evil. Something for us to remember. 
that there is indeed many things in this life that are lawful, that are good, that are good gifts. That doesn't mean that we get to fill our closets with them and stuff our mouths full of them and fill our garages with them just because they're good in themselves. If we lust after them, then they become evil things. The sin was not even that these were foods that were associated with Egypt. Egypt, we know, is a picture of the bondage of sin and of death. And so many say, well, their sin was they, they wanted Egypt's food. They wanted that, that food that was associated with Egypt. <clears throat> That's not true either. In fact, you can read in the Old Testament many places where they ate these same foods in the land flowing with milk and honey. They were the same foods that they ate in Israel, and they ate them freely without lusting after them. So the lesson here is not that the church is called to live an austere life, that to be a good Christian means we have to wear the shabbiest clothes and avoid all the sorts of foods that are associated with the rich and the wealthy, and even those foods that are associated with the world, which... Egypt is a picture of. That's not the lesson. In fact, that's evident from the fact that when God judges them, when God sends this plague that kills so many that there is a mass grave that is named the grave of lust, when that happens, their mouths are filled with quail. They're filled with quail that God gave them directly and miraculously. That came from no other source than directly from the hand of God. And yet, while the quail was still in their mouth and they were chewing, God struck them down. And struck them down because they were guilty of the sin of lust. No, these... Things are called evil. This food, this onions and garlic and those melons, they're called evil because they lusted after them and it was their lust that made them evil. So we need to look at what lust is. Now lust is a desire. Lust is not an action that we commit with our body as such. It moves the body, it motivates the body. It's what caused the people of Israel to cry and complain and to weep and then scramble to grab as many quail as they possibly could. Lust is what was underlying all that. Lust is in the heart. It's a desire of the heart. And lust is really simply a desire. In fact, it's a desire for something something you do not have. And as we see from the text, that desire can even be for something good, something that's a gift of God, and yet there is something that makes that particular desire lost. We ought to be aware of that, because it's not unlawful to have desires. In fact, it's not even unlawful to have covetousness as such. Even the apostle himself is going to say, covet the best things. In other words, there are desires. The heart is meant to desire. It's part of our will. It's part of what we want and wish. It's part of being a human being. We may desire, and we may have desires, but we must be on guard that they do not become lust. 
So how did these desires, how did perhaps even lawful desires for lawful and good things, what made them lust? Well, lust has these components. Their desires were evil lusts because in the first place, it was an aspect of sinful coveting. In other words, it was sin against the tenth commandment. And coveting is the sin of wanting something you do not have or cannot have without leaving your present course of life. Covetousness is the desire to have something you do not have and you're not really able to have given your current means of living or your current walk of life. You, as it were, have to go out of the way to get it. It's clear God does not provide it. It's clear that God does not give it to you the ordinary way. That's part of coveting. That was the case here. Because except for the quail, in order to have that food from Egypt, the only way to get it was to go back to Egypt. Everyone knew that. That which they lusted after, what they wanted, what they desired to eat, wasn't in the wilderness. It couldn't be found in the wilderness. So it wasn't simply that they were desiring certain foods and saying to themselves, yeah, I remember how good that food was, and I can't wait till we can eat it again, but it's let's go back. Let's return to Egypt. In other words, it's a desire for something you do not have that requires you to sin, that requires you to leave the way of God, to forsake Him in a way. That was their sin. Next, their desire was evil lust because it was an aspect of idolatry. That is, sin against the first commandment. Not only sin against the tenth, but the first, and we might as well throw in the second with it. Idolatry. How so? Well, you see, their desires, their desires were lust because they were rooted in the conviction that our life isn't going to be worth living unless we have these things. It was rooted in the faith, the conviction, the understanding, really a form of worship, that our life will be greatly improved and much bettered if only we have these things. Take them away and we're going to die. We're going to fail. We're not going to be what we're supposed to be, and that's idolatry. It is to take the good gifts of God and the things of this creation and turn them into God. Because you attribute to things that which only God can provide. Things don't make you happy. Things don't make your life pleasurable. Ooh. Ooh, how contrary that is to the thinking of Egypt and the world. Contrary to even our own depraved nature. Why, it's things that make us happy. You see? You see what we have to look for in this coming week? How easily we imagine that if only I have this and only I have that. Things lawful and good in themselves. I'll be happier. My life will be easier. I'll be more blessed. I'll be more richly endowed with God. Not so. Not so. That's one of the lessons God was teaching them with the quail. 
You think that quail is what you need to live. You think quail will satisfy you. You think that that can fill your soul? No. Only as we learn even in the Heidelberg Catechism with regard to providence, unless God blesses our food, it's vanity. It works our destruction. It's for our harm. It must come with God's blessing. So that was Israel. They supposed their life was not blessed. It was not good. Being away from Egypt and there in the wilderness. But these foods, that'll make it better. Being back in Egypt, our lives will be better. Their desire was evil lost in the third place because it was ingratitude. The fact was, God had been caring for them all along. The fact is, they had forgotten already, in just a short while, a few weeks, how they had been slaves, how the whips had been put upon their back, how they had been throwing children in the Nile River. They forgot about the fact that Pharaoh was a cruel taskmaster that would do anything to get what he wanted, that brooked no opposition. They had forgotten all these things, and all they could remember was food. Good food. God had been providing for them miraculously. They had forgotten about the ten plagues that had destroyed the Egyptians before their eyes. They had forgotten about the drowning of Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea right before their eyes only a short while ago. God had already miraculously provided for them And when God judges them, their teeth are full of quail that God had miraculously brought them. And for those things, there was no gratitude, no thankfulness. You recognize that, of course. It's one thing, for example, when your children come to you and say, Father and Mother, I would would like to have this or that. Uh, Perhaps... We even tolerate a certain amount of, I would like this or that because it's going to improve my life and and make it better. You might warn them, that's not so. Be careful of idolatry, but what puts it over the top is when it's ingratitude. When they demand, not ask. When they require. When they threaten. Forgetting of course, about all your care and your provision for their life. That's what Israel had done to God. That was the lust. They loved, for example, the idea of being in a land of milk and honey. They really liked the idea of being freed and having their own place and having all kinds of food, even onions and leeks and garlics. As long as it didn't deprive them of anything. As long as there was no hurt and harm that would come to them in order to achieve that. That, you see, is the difference. That's lust. We should be aware, too, of the reality 
that this sin originated in a particular place in Israel. In the beginning of that chapter, God has to send fire, and he sends fire to the outermost parts of the camp, and that's because the sin there originated on the fringes of the camp. This one originates in the heart of the camp, and among those that are called the mixed multitudes. The mixed multitudes are those who were not Jews, were not of the nation of Israel. They were Egyptians. They were those who married Egyptians and were the result of those. And when the Bible uses that term, it's not being racist. What it's doing is pointing out something. That these people, as you would expect, did not have an understanding, did not have a knowledge, and did not have an appreciation for the covenant of God for their heritage in Abraham, and they're always an example of those who attach themselves to the church but don't live by faith. There's something attractive about belonging to a church and going to a church, even coming to church. They may be faithful in their attendance. They may be faithful at the Lord's table. They may even have an outward appearance of that which is good and right. But when you look in their heart, it's filled with lust. And often, if you would examine a congregation, the whole, the whole that falls into this sin, the whole that was judged by God here, you will often discover that the lust that is loose, the lust that causes a whole congregation, as it were, to chomp down on quail, thinking the Lord has greatly blessed them only to fall dead, arises in a mixed multitude those that have attached themselves to the church but have no love for the church itself, its heritage, and certainly the God of that church. This is one great sin about which we ought to examine ourselves this week, the sin of lusting for evil things as Israel did. We're not called simply to examine ourselves with regard to that long list that we find in the form those sins that perhaps are gross, those sins that, if found out, might become public, those sins that are notorious even in the world. But even desires. We're called to examine our desires, our wants, our wishes that we will have and do have as human beings. And to ask ourselves, are they lost? Is my desire not only for steak, but also hot dogs lost? Is my desire not only for a mansion, but even just simply a place to live lost? Is my desire not only for a Lexus, but just a car lost? Are my desires for even that which I need to eat and drink lust? Yes or no? Lust, whereby we desire that which we do not have, that God has denied us, that God has not provided us. 
so that soon we are thinking about going outside of our means to obtain it, to work too long, to work beyond that which is healthy for our family and our marriage, perhaps to trim a little fat off the top for ourselves in our business, to have a little side hustle going on that we can avoid paying taxes with regard to. Perhaps it's simply that we're looking and thinking evil things soon in our heart. Do we find in our heart a desire for things that is accompanied with this, that those things will provide that which only God can provide? Those things which God alone does provide. Happiness and health and wealth. True honor and glory. A good name. Those don't come from things. Those don't come from people. They come from God. In other words, our desires, sins against the ninth, tenth commandment, rather, and the first and second commandment. Are our desires simply disguised forms of ingratitude? Those kinds of things whereby we say with our lips as we have our hands and heads bowed piously in prayer, O Lord, we thank Thee for all these things, but in our heart is we're looking for the next big thing. Two more feet to the boat. Two more feet to the RV. 5,000 more square foot here. O Lord, we thank Thee, but in our heart, maybe we don't even dare pray it because we know that would be wrong, but the desire nevertheless is still there. And if only I had that, if only I had that job, and if only I had that paycheck, and if only I had that square footage, and if I only had that car, then I would be happier. Do we find the desires in our heart to be that which is simply the things of this world? You see, that's really the lesson of Kibroth Hateva. You see, the lesson of Kibroth Hateva is not simply about the danger and the warning about lust for evil things, earthly things, physical things, but the inseparable connection between that and the desire for spiritual things. You see, that's what the Apostle points out and why it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You see, it wasn't just simply that they lusted for earthly things that became evil lusts, but it was because of that they despised the heavenly manna. They despised the heavenly bread. There is the real danger. And there is the real sin. Because again, as even the little children here know, even as they know when they observe the Lord's Supper, what that manna represents, what the bread and wine represents, and that is Jesus Christ. 
The Bible makes also clear that when Israel despised the manna, they weren't simply despising that physical stuff that fell on the ground that they had to eat, but they despised that which it represented, Jesus Christ. And if you ask now, why did they despise Jesus Christ? How could that be? Jesus Christ, which delivered them from the bondage of sin and death. Jesus Christ, which miraculously delivered them from Pharaoh and his hosts. How can it be that in the church someone despises Jesus Christ? The answer is, they lusted after evil things. So we need to look at that a little closer. This despising of spiritual food, even manna. You see, now what God gave was good. In fact, it was good because God gave it. You see, lust doesn't recognize really where things come from. Lust thinks this way, that that what I desire is that which I obtain by my own efforts. Lust doesn't look at things as God providing them. You see that again, even in the quail. Why God became so angry at that moment is something clearly was being shown there. God provided these quail. It was God not so subtly also reminding Israel, and I've brought you everything else too. Not just the rock that followed them, that water, that manna that came from heaven, but everything. Lust forgets that. And if you ask now, how could it be that someone despises the heavenly manna, the manna which is Christ, it always begins with forgetting that everything God provides us is good. If he feeds us just bread for this day, it is good. What God provided Israel in the wilderness was good. It was manna. It came to them every night. God gave it, and they were blind to that. That manna was good because it was given by a miracle of God. By that, God showed His grace. God showed that Israel was the object of His grace and of His favor. That the real blessedness of Israel was not that He delivered them from scourges and whips and cruel taskmasters, but that which they represented the real bondage of sin and of death. And that God would do in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God must provide. And God provided that, not because he had to. God provided it, not even because they asked. God provided it, not even because they needed it. God provided it because he loved his people. God had chosen them as a people. And in his goodness and grace, he provided that food. God gave them good food, nutritious food, food that had everything that they needed for life. They forgot that too. Their complaint wasn't, this food is terrible, this food is vile, this food makes me throw up. Their complaint wasn't, we've eaten this food now for a week and we find ourselves very weak in our minds and in our souls and in our bodies, it doesn't have any nutrition. It tastes good, but it's not nutritious. No. No, that's because that wouldn't be true. God 
would feed them for 40 years. And let's keep in mind how many God fed. We learn in Numbers 11 there were at least 600,000 footmen, that is soldiers. Do a little math and you can easily number the nation of Israel at well over a million, perhaps two million people. That's why when the Lord said, I'm going to provide flesh, not just for one day, but a whole month, even Moses, believing Moses, doubted God. He quickly did the calculation and realized that even if they slaughtered all the animals that night, they wouldn't have enough food. God with manna would provide for that number of people every day for 40 years. And they despised that. They were unthankful about that. They did not consider as their God even the God who did that. Much preferable was Egypt and its food. And even more importantly, as the Apostle points out, and as also the believing in Israel knew, all of that was but a picture. They were blind to the picture that Moses was of the coming Messiah. They were blind to the provision of elders who were prophets. A sign that a prophet was coming, one who was the prophet, the priest, the king, the words of Moses and the wish of Moses that I wished all God's people were prophets would be fulfilled in Christ and in the New Testament church. Oh, what they despised was truly the spiritual food that that physical food represented. That was their sin. And this is a lesson for us as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, as the Apostle Paul brings out. The lesson to be learned here in Georgetown this evening is that the examination of our hearts with regard to lust is fundamental to self-examination. It may not be overlooked We may find when we do self-examination our heart wrongly involved in everyone else's lives. We're examining their lives and we forget about ourselves. But let's suppose that we remember ourselves. We're not all that hard on ourselves, are we? Proof of that is why sometimes the spiritual Sanhedrin in the New Testament have to tap us on the shoulder and say, you're not partaking. If you ask why some people sometimes have to be barred from the Lord's table, the answer is because they have not been conducting a self-examination of themselves. And you may add that when that has done, they have not examined their heart with regard to lust. And why is that important? Because at the Lord's table, we partake of Christ. We sometimes think that the only thing we prepare for are overt sins with regard to our body or those against the neighbor. But we forget that all sin is against our God in Jesus Christ. It includes our attitude toward God. How in the world can we come to the table and partake of Jesus Christ when we don't even examine or notice 
that we have lusts in our heart that are idolatry, that are the service of another God. You see? That's brought out by the sacrament. The apostle calls it the communion of the body of Christ. That is, the partaking of spiritual manna. What is it that stands in the way of being hungry and thirsty for that spiritual manna? The answer is lust. That example of kibroth hateavah. Notice that even among the sins that are listed in the form are those who are despisers of God and of His Word. And sometimes we can read that list and look at that and say, who are those people? Who despises God and His Word? We can even look at the church. Why? There's a lot of Jesus talk. There's a lot of talk about love for God. How in the world can there be a despising of God and His Word there? And the answer is because there's a church there filled with lust. There's an individual there filled with lust. And when we're filled with lust, there's no place in our heart to lust after God, to be covetous for the right things, the good things. You see, the fact of the matter is, when there's lust in our heart, lust for evil things, then there's no room in our heart for the Word of God, even there too. Some might ask, well, that's kind of far-fetched. I love the Lord. How can I despise the Lord? And the answer often is found in, well, what's your attitude toward the Word of God? You see, the heavenly manna is not the only other representation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word. And in the Bible, we have the Word. This is the Word inscripturated. The same Word as the Word incarnated. But that Word is despised. The people say, we don't want that word. Is that all there is in this life? Is the word of God? You mean we have to come to church twice on Sunday to hear the word? Another Bible study to study the word? You mean the word has to be in all the sermons? The word should be our focus in Bible discussion? You mean when we talk one to another, we should be talking using the Word of God? Is that all there is? Now, we might not quite dare say it, but the attitude is there. The attitude can easily be there. And if you ask yourself, well, why is it there? The answer is because the heart is filled with lust for all kinds of other things that we think really bring pleasure and goodness when it's not true at all. Over against the desires of the heart and the evil thoughts of men is God's own judgment of what is good. The Word of God is good. Oh, so good. God comes to the New Testament church and says, this is what you will live on. You will live on me. You will live on me in the form of the word preached. That is what I feed you. That is what I give you. None of the other things matter. None of the other things make a difference. This is what you need. This is what I provide. 
and in case because of weak faith, we do not understand and know, perhaps we refuse, perhaps there is the Lord's table, the Lord's table where we're to examine ourselves, and the Lord's table where that word comes in a form other than through the hearing to make us eat and drink Christ in a way that is unmistakable. God wrote an epitaph. You children know what an epitaph is? An epitaph is a saying that you write or carve into a gravestone. Next time you're at the graveyard for a funeral, start looking around at gravestones and you'll find carved in them the name of the people buried there, the date of their birth, perhaps when they died, and sometimes an epitaph. And that epitaph is meant to make you remember. Remember the person. To remember their life. To remember something. Perhaps it's even to remember the word of God. People will write scripture verses. Those are epitaphs. Well, God wrote one here. And God wrote that when he himself gave the name that he did to that place. The epitaph was the grave of lust. God did what he did so that Israel would remember and never forget. That's the headstone that God placed over that grave, not only for now, but until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember because we are those who are likely to justify the same sin the same sin in our own heart, the same sin in the church, and often with these words, well, they're sincere Christians. He's a sincere Christian. Well, I can assure you that the children of Israel were very sincere in their religion. Very sincere in all of their actions. Sincere in their weeping. Sincere in their behavior. Sincere about the thoughts of their heart but they sinned. They lived in that sin. And because of that sin, they despised the heavenly manna and God judged them. The judgment was even that God gave them over to that which they wanted until it came out of their mouths and noses and became loathsome. God will do that sometime. You have a church that's so filled with lust. The people are busy there in that church accumulating themselves goods. They're forever building greater houses, getting more money, more bank accounts, higher esteem of men, larger RVs, bigger boats, longer vacations, and on and on and on it goes. And you've asked them, they'll even say, the Lord has blessed me this year. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord has given, not so fast. The Lord can sometimes give us what we want and then make us choke on it. Send us right to the grave with it. And if you ask, well, how does God do that? And the answer is, by taking away that which ought to be in our heart. You see, when we get what we want, when we lust more and more, and that is never checked, never examined, never repented of, never put away, there will be the despising of the heavenly manna. 
And if one does not have a heavenly manna, what happens? What happens if you don't eat and drink Christ? What happens? Doesn't matter if you're still coming to church. Doesn't matter if you're still seated at the Lord's table. What happens if you're not eating and drinking Christ by faith? The answer is you die. You're dead. The lesson to be learned from Kibroth Hateva, there were many who so died that they never entered into the land of rest. That's the lesson that's repeated over and over. Why? Because we say, it can't happen to me. The people of God, the people of God are we. We're the elect children of God. We're God's Israel. It can't happen to me. Oh, yes, it can. It did. And the Apostle Paul, especially as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, points his finger at what to watch out for, what to look for. So important is it that the Lord wrote this epitaph in the New Testament as a severe warning for us. Let us not be so foolish as to think that just because we received the sign and the picture, we received the reality. There were many who ate the manna. There were many who drank from the rock. In fact, the apostle says something that's shocking. He even says they even drank of that spiritual rock was Christ. In a way, they all ate and drank Christ in a very real way, and yet dropped like flies. And dropped, for one reason, lust. And because of lust, they despised that food and drink God gave them. That's the warning for us. That's the word that comes to us and says, examine, examine yourself with regard to us. And of course, when we find lust, not if, when. There's a reason why the apostle brings this, not just to the mixed multitude, brings it to the whole church. Because when we find that sin, we must repent. That's the way to the Lord's table. Repentance. I'm sorry. Sorry for my lust. My evil nature. When we do, when by God's spirit and grace, we recognize the lust, rather than jamming our mouths full of the quail, we will find there also a great love for the heavenly bread. We'll see the desires for all these other things diminish and our great love and gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ grow and grow. It's what the Bible says when you come to the table hungry, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You say, why is that? The answer is, well, you're alive. Christ has made you alive. And like the living, like the truly living, we hunger and we thirst. And that life needs to be provided for. And that's there at the table. So come believing, believing that Christ provides for even those who lust. Recognize their lust, are sorry for their lust find forgiveness for their lust in that heavenly manna, 
Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's now turn to the form and read the section on self-examination. Page 91, the true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. In other words, self-examination says, I deserve to be buried in the grave of lust. That's what I deserve. That's who I am. That's what I find in my heart. But I abhor that. I hate that. We humble ourselves before God. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God. What? That all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. And that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposeth henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life, and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he hath laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those then who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. And on the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. And thus far we read. Let's now call upon our God in prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we pray with thanksgiving for thy word, thy word of truth, the word of the Holy Gospel, the word which brings us to our Lord Jesus Christ, and pray that that may be done in this coming week. As we examine ourselves, as we find our sin, as we find sorrow in our sin, we pray, Lord, work such repentance in us, and we pray, be the examiner of our heart and our own conscience. And bring us, draw us by thy mighty grace and spirit to the table of the Lord that we might eat and drink him to the salvation, deliverance, the health, the blessedness of our soul. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.